Ah, that's great. (laughs) Let's read some verses, shall we, from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, We're going to read from from, uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. And uh, it's the next stage in the story of Jesus that we've been looking at for five months now. And we've reached a stage where Jesus has grown up. And he's uh, been baptised by John the Baptist. He spent some time down south of Jerusalem in the desert preaching and baptising people, or at least getting his disciples to baptise people. And now he's called his disciples and goes back north to Galilee where he came from. That's where we start, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralysed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when he saw these crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he carries on to give the rest of what's now called the Beatitudes, and then starts talking about all sorts of other things as well. And in the most extended part of, of, of teaching that you get from Jesus anywhere in the Gospels, it goes right on to the end of chapter 7. So let's look at the end of chapter 7. And where he sums up the whole thing from verse 24 by saying, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streets rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Well, that's enough to get us started. Let me just put in the usual advert for tonight. (laughs) We're going through our great question series in the evenings, looking at some of the big questions and sensible questions that people ask about the Christian faith and how we can answer them. And tonight, we've, we've got to really the one that's the heart of the matter. What do we really know about Jesus? Because all too often, that's the big question that people have to solve. What think ye of Christ? And once people have Jesus in perspective, once they understand what Jesus was about, And what he came to say, and what he now offers, it makes a lot of sense. But until then, there were lots of questions. Did we know that he actually lived at all? Can we trust the stories about him? Richard Dawkins says it's very unlikely that any of the gospel writers ever met Jesus or knew anything about him that they hadn't heard from somebody else. Is he right? Actually, he's totally wrong. (laughs) But uh, that's the kind of claim that's being made. If we believe that Jesus existed... Do we really believe that he performed miracles, the kind that we just read about at the end of Matthew chapter 4? Is there any evidence for that whatsoever? How about uh, what he said? We're going to talk about his longest and and, and, and greatest, well, great, depends on how you look at it, but one of his best known, certainly, sermons this morning. Are we convinced that he said it? Is this something that Matthew's made up? And so you go on asking the questions, did he really die on the cross? What was he really all about? And we're going to have a look at all of the evidence for that 
just a little bit of it, but the important stuff uh, this evening. So if you can come, that's brilliant. Uh, if not, then uh, do go to the, uh, the, the Bush Inference if you want to, because that'll be good stuff. Ian Coffey is worth listening to you. Anyhow, let's talk about the Sermon on the Mount. And we've been through the life of Jesus right to the point where he sits down on the hillside and gives his manifesto, if you like. This is what he's really all about. I just want to ask three very simple questions about it this morning. First of all, who was Jesus talking to? Who was it addressed to? Was it, is it to everybody? Is it to a, a particular group? Or is it something that only has impact in the future? I mean, I, I know some people who, when I was a child, said, the, the Sermon on the Mount does not apply to Christians today. It's dispensational truth for another dispensation. It will come into play in the future. But for the moment, we don't need to pay any attention to it because it's not for us. Well, who was it for? That's the first thing you've got to ask. Albert Schweitzer, the, uh, the uh, German theologian and, and, and missionary who came from a very different theological position, said it was interim ethics for the time of the end. He believed that Jesus thought the end of the world was coming any minute. And so these are kind of ethics that he gave to his people. This is how you've got to behave before the end comes. And therefore, they don't apply to us any longer because we know that uh, uh, the, the end of the world didn't actually come in the first century. So it's got nothing to do with us. Is that true? Or who did it actually apply to? Here's one of the uh, best known paintings of the Sermon on the Mount in history. It was uh, painted by this guy, Claude Lorrain, back in the uh, 1640s, probably 1650. And uh, it's a nice picture, but it's a pretty dark one now. The, as you can see, the the, the, the colours have faded a little bit. And a few years ago, David Hockney, the, the you know, famous British artist, decided he was going to clean it up digitally on his iPad. And he's quite amazed with what he found. And so as a result, he painted his own version of it. This is Hockney's version. And he says, it's interesting because there are two groups of people. And yet the artist manages to keep the focus on Jesus right up the top of the hill there. And so you've got the disciples, that's the first group, sitting around Jesus at the top of the hill. And then way down below at the foot of the hill, you've got all of these other people who are in the picture as well. And Hockney said he was not interested in the message of Jesus at all. He was just interested in the way that the picture was grouped together. But I think that's quite a helpful way to look at the Sermon on the Mount. Because there were two groups of people there. You see that in Matthew chapter 4, don't, or chapter 5, the start of chapter 5, don't you? When he saw the crowd... And we just read about the crowds at the end of chapter 4. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea. In fact, all over the country. And they all started being drawn to Jesus. But they're all at the foot of the hill. When he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. So the group that this is really for, the group who are the real focus of his teaching here, are not the crowds down the bottom of the hill, but the disciples up at the top. There's the crowd down the bottom. And you see the way that Lorenz painted them. There's quite a difference in the way that they're looking at Jesus. There are those who are really involved. But if you look at the people down at the bottom, close up, not everybody's ready to be a disciple. There are some who are kind of venerating Jesus, possibly want a miracle, something like that. There are others who are just chatting to one another in the background. There's one guy in the middle who seems to be a know-it-all who's explaining all about Jesus to other people, although he's not up the top himself. And uh, the crowd has uh, always follows Jesus around. People are still fascinated with Jesus, even nowadays. There are more books written about Jesus, more TV documentaries, than any other figure from that time in history. So the crowd still follows and they're fascinated. But Jesus' teaching here is really for his disciples. Not everybody is ready to be a disciple. Now, now 
If you remember a few weeks ago, when we were talking about Jesus choosing his disciples, we said that basically a disciple is somebody who follows Jesus in every area of his or her personality, mind, will, and emotions. And we said back in those days, when you became the disciple of a rabbi, there were three basic tasks you had to do. First of all, you had to learn to learn. You had to take on board the rabbi's teaching, see how he approached the scriptures, and learn to approach them in the same way. And Jesus, what he was doing here was, was showing his disciples how the Old Testament, the, the scripture they'd known all their life from being tiny Jewish boys, had a different spin on them when you looked at them through the, the, the lens of the fact that God was doing something different now. His kingdom was arriving on earth. Jesus was the center of the whole process. And those words they'd known for years and years actually had a bite and a relevance to them that they'd never had before. But just knowing the truth didn't make you a disciple. You had to learn to live as well. You had to behave in certain ways. And what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is unpacks in detail how we're supposed to relate to one another. That's the first half of the sermon. In the second half, he talks about how we ought to think inside ourselves, in the places where nobody else sees us, right down in the centre of our lives. The way we act, the way we think, the way we make choices, that is part of discipleship too. And so they were doing those things, but also they were there in a group. And the third thing about being a disciple was that you were learning to love, learning to be part of a group with others. And so again, in the first half, the outward side of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks a lot about the way we relate to one another, how much we give to one another, how we've got to treat one another, how we've got to trust one another. And all of that is there in those three incredible chapters. And we talked about how the, the words that are used in the New Testament uh, that uh, for a disciple sum up those three things. The believer understands with his or her mind what Jesus is talking about. The saint, the one who's separated, set apart from other people, starts to live a new, different, radical lifestyle because that's what Jesus taught. And the brother the sister. Well, that talks about a relationship with one another and the way in which it's together that we do this stuff and not just on our own. Somebody who's learned about this quite recently, who's also just leaving Liverpool Football Club, having played his, his no, I think he plays his last game for them this afternoon, I don't know, but uh, is, is the guy who's being baptised in this picture. When you see these pictures from Instagram, you might think, hello, what's, what are those guys doing in the water with their hands up like that? That looks very like Alison Becker, the Liverpool goalkeeper. What's going on here? Well, it's because of this guy. Roberto Firmino became a Christian just a short while ago, and here he is being baptised in his own swimming pool, which is pretty flitty, but then he does play for Liverpool. And uh, Firmino um, is somebody who uh, has become a very, very convinced and outspoken Christian just over the last little while. Here he is giving his testimony through the microphone, and later on on Instagram, when he put those pictures up there, he said this, I gave you my failures and I'll give you my victories too. My greatest title now is your love, Jesus. So if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. It's a new time now. And uh, Alison Becker is there because he was one of the people on the Liverpool team who helped to lead Firmino to Christ and establish him as a Christian when he started. And uh, he wrote uh, on his own Instagram account, if you believe in God, you know you have to do your best on the pitch and put love into everything you do in life. And that's... The response of two guys who are starting to learn what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a whole life thing. It's not just believing in God. It's not just trying to live a good life. It's being part of a new kingdom which is coming.
one in which everything gets changed in a revolutionary way. So you, you come on to the second thing. Why did he give this talk? Jesus has been preaching for quite a while. It says in synagogues around Galilee and all over the place. The disciples have been knocking around with him off and on for a while. They've obviously picked up quite a bit of this story. Why did he give this talk? And why, if he wanted his disciples to learn about God's kingdom and the standards of God's kingdom, did he not just take them away when we're on their own? Why do it in front of the crowd? Well, I think it's got something to do with the guy in this picture here. You might look at that and think, hang on a minute, you're talking about Jesus standing on a mountain giving a talk. You've got the wrong picture there, haven't you, John? Because that's not Jesus. That's Moses, centuries before, standing on Mount Sinai, giving the law. Absolutely right. I think the Sermon on the Mount here would have recalled very much for Jewish people Moses standing on the mountain proclaiming what God wanted from the people in those days. See, Matthew, who wrote the gospel in which you find the Sermon on the Mount, was very, very Jewish. I mean, he was only he was a proud Jew, but only that way, I think, because he was so compromised. He, he'd been a tax gatherer. In other words, he'd been working for the Roman government and feathering his own nest at the same time. And sometimes you find it's people who are closest to the other side who are the most intensely patriotic. I tell you, the worst place to be a Scotsman in England is Carlisle. <laughs> Because you're close to the border there. They have long memories going back a long way um, from uh, of how the Scots used to come across the border and pinch all their cattle and go home again, burning down a few buildings as they did so. And so you are not popular if you're a Scot in Carlisle, I can tell you. How McVitie's ever managed to start a biscuit factory there, I cannot imagine. <laughs> but anyhow, um, sometimes it's when you're, you're closest to the other side that you feel most intensely nationalistic, isn't it? And I, I reckon Matthew was a bit like that. Because his gospel is the most Jewish of all four gospels. And I think he wrote his gospel that way because um, the Sermon on the Mount is a parallel to Moses announcing to the people who are about to go into the promised land, this is how you've got to live if you really are the people of God. You've got to choose whether you're going to go God's way or not. This is a mountain where uh, Moses was taken by God to look over the land that the people were going into. This is Mount Nebo, on the far side of the Jordan, from where the Israelites had been brought to. And God said to Moses, as he stood there on Mount Nebo looking out, oops, hang on a minute, that's, that's Mount Nebo nowadays anyhow. Um, as you can see, you can see a long way all over the promised land. And uh, Moses was looking out to all the places. There wasn't a helpful sign there telling you what you were looking up. That's been put up a little bit since. But uh, that, was, that was the kind of place where Moses was. And God said, this is where your people are going. You brought them all this way through the desert to the promised land. I've let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And the one thing that Moses had dreamt of for so many years, leading his people into the promised land, he wasn't quite going to succeed with. He'd done a great job, but he wasn't going to be part of the future. And as he stood there on Mount Nebo and looked at what God was going to give to his people, he was looking across 30 miles towards another mountain where something would happen. Oof, long, long centuries, maybe 1,400 years after he stood there. And that was a mountain where somebody died who looked like an absolute failure. Moses looked like a success at that point, didn't he? Going up Mount Nebo, we've made it, we're here, all we have to do is conquer the country and it's ours. And he looked as if he was the successful leader who'd led his people through the desert, and here he was. But he wasn't going to take that final step. He couldn't do it. Whereas when Jesus died on the cross, <laughs> Mount Calvary, it seemed like a total defeat. And actually, 
it was the world's greatest victory. And I, I would write many years later, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. So I think Matthew saw a contrast between Moses and, uh, and Jesus. Just as Moses had led the people out of slavery in Egypt, all the way that God wanted them to go, right to the promised land, so Jesus was setting up a new kingdom. He was fulfilling the original vision that God had had and, and, and bringing people from every tribe and every nation into a new kingdom. Where you, there wouldn't be Jew or Gentile, but everybody would be. Uh, uh, part of the family of God. And so he wrote his gospel in a very carefully planned way. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but uh, Matthew has five different parts to it. And uh, those five different parts are a bit like um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the five books of the law in the Old Testament. And uh, the, you can tell there are five parts to it because he uses this phrase at the end of every section. When Jesus had finished speaking these words... And so there are five great proclamations by Jesus that divide up the Gospel of Matthew. This is the first of them, the Sermon on the Mount. Then later on you get the instructions that he gives to the twelve when he sends them out on their first missionary journey. Then, then later on you get the parables of the kingdom, where he tells people about what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. And this, the, some of these stories, as we saw when we talked about the parables, were just not understood by many of the people who were there. But it left pictures and images in their mind that would all make sense after Jesus died and risen again. The fourth thing, he talks in uh, Matthew 18 about living in the kingdom. But what happens when you have disputes, when you fall out with one another? How is it that Christians have got to give themselves to one another? All of that stuff is there. And in the final section, when in, in Matthew 24, his disciples ask him, what's going to happen at the end of the world? <laughs> and Jesus tells them in depth. And that's the final thing. And I, I suppose if, if we wanted to do it, we could, you could look at each of those books of the Old Testament and see how each of them, uh, is, is, is recaptured in the theme of those messages. Matthew's clearly planned his gospel in that way. So the service on the Mount, if you like, is a parallel to Genesis, where it all starts, where God is doing something new. Genesis is the book of creation. And what God is going to do through Jesus and his death on the cross is bring together people into a new life, a new kingdom, a new way of living. So this is the manifesto for the kingdom. This is the announcement of everything that Jesus is going to be doing. That leaves us just with one question, doesn't it? What did he say? Now, we are not going to get through that this morning. Don't worry, relax. It's okay. I'm not even going to try. I am going to try something impossible in a minute, which is just to give you a lightning sketch of the entire content of the Sermon on the Mount and how it fits together. But I'll do that very quickly, I promise. And uh, there's been so much commentary, so many books written on the Sermon on the Mount. Just this last week, I've read five of them. And, uh, you know, there are plenty more to come. And, uh, um... There's an awful lot that you could say about the Sermon on the Mount. Well, let's just make some very, very simple points. The first thing that Jesus makes very clear, almost at the outset of the whole thing, is that he hasn't come to demolish what Moses did. God gave the law through Moses, and Jesus said, don't think I've come to take away the law. I've come to fulfill it instead. Um, <coughs> Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And so Jesus says, I've got some new things to say. But they're a fulfillment 
of what you've heard before. They're not saying God says this, but I say that. It's not that way at all. What's going on is that I'm, I, I'm just going to give you the completion of everything that God has said so far. And he says, I've come to fulfill the law. Now, here's a picture of a bath running over. <laughs> that's the word that's used in Greek, perisuo. It means I have come to fill right up to the top until it's spilling over the sides. And so Jesus is fulfilling everything that God's got to, got, got to say. You see, there are lots of things that the Israelites didn't understand in the old days when Moses was there about what God was going to do with the whole world. They just knew that God had chosen them some special people and he wanted them to go to a promised land flowing with milk and honey. That was about as much as they knew. But God's plan for the whole world, all of the nations of the earth, or God's plan for the cosmos? Well, you don't read about that till Colossians, do you? <laughs> and all of that is still to come. And Jesus says, I've come to fulfill all of that and give you all of the stuff you haven't got before. And in the, the, the translation, the message, the it's a modern-day translation, which Eugene Peterson did, he, he translates um, uh, what Jesus says initially like this. Unless you do far better than the Pharisees in the matter of right living, you won't know the first thing about entering the kingdom. Your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees, he says. Or in in, in uh, modern language, there are matters of right living that we all have to deal with. We all have to behave in certain ways. Now, look at the Pharisees. They have a blinded vision. They understand as far as the law of God appears to, applies to the Jews. And they, they tell you all sorts of things about how you've got to behave if you want to be a good Jew. But there's a much wider picture. God's concerned not just the Jewish nation, but the whole earth. And you, you look at the little rules they make for being righteous. They are the tiny things about tithes of mint and anise and cumin. It's the great matters of the law that you need to be concerned about. And so, how did Jesus actually fulfill the law? Well, I think there are three ways in which Jesus fulfilled the law. First of all, everything before him was imperfect. Nobody had ever done it. <laughs> you know, God had made these commands, the Ten Commandments, all the rest of it, and nobody had been able to keep up to them. And the nation had slipped into rebellion and apathy again and again and again. Jesus was the first person who'd ever lived the law completely. He was perfect. He was the son of God. And he demonstrated what a human life should look like by his relationship with God and the way in which he behaved. Jesus fulfilled the law personally as nobody ever had through history. But that wouldn't have done as much good, would it? If Jesus had just come down here and said, look, this is how you do it. You, why, why can't you guys do it? Look, I'm doing it. I'm doing it all the time. Come on, he said, Give it, come on try a bit harder. That wouldn't have done us an awful lot of good. And so the second thing is, everything before him was incomplete. All the law and the prophets prophesied until John, he says in chapter 11. But then Jesus brings it all to, to fruition. Everything in the Old Testament was heading towards John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said, repent, repent, because the kingdom's coming. Somebody's coming who's greater than I am. The latchet of his shoe are not worthy to unloose. But that was as far as it went. It just got that far. And only Jesus, when he came preaching this message of his kingdom, fulfilled the whole thing so that people could finally see, this is what God's shooting for. This is where we're going. This is what it means to be part of his kingdom. And the third thing is, everything before him was unexplained. After the coming of Jesus, you see the law clearly. Some things are permanent and some things are not. All of the sacrifices in the temple, they, they, they are going to reach the fulfillment when Jesus dies on the cross. So we don't need to carry on sacrificing animals for centuries and centuries. 
We don't need to live in certain ways to show our distinctiveness because the distinctiveness has got to come from our character and our relationship with one another. And so Jesus gives a completely different spin on the whole thing. Okay, so what is the structure of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, it's a sermon given on a mountainside. And many, many scholars have commented that the shape of the Sermon on the Mount is actually like a mountain. <laughs> it rises up towards the Lord's Prayer, which is right at the heart of the whole thing, and then you come down the other side as well. The first side is about how we have to one to, to out there in society with one another, and the uh, second side is about how we behave inside ourselves, what it means to be a Christian inside, the kind of choices we have to make. Let's just see if we can uh, put the structure uh, up here for a minute or two. The first thing, as we've noticed, as, as, as we read into chapter 5, is that it starts with the Beatitudes, where Jesus said, Blessed are these people, these people, these people, these people. Some, some modern translations translate it as happy. But it's not just about happiness. It's about blessedness. It's about saying, these are the people God approves of. These are the people God is going to work through. There is, these are the people whose life is really working even if it doesn't seem like that at the moment, when you're poor in spirit and weak and all the rest of it and persecuted by other people. But these are the people who are going somewhere in life. Success is not necessarily what you think it is. And that's just opening it up. Then he goes on to talk about the fact that the people who are going to live that way are going to be like salt and light in the world. They're going to be different. They're going to influence society. They're going to show a different way ahead, just like a, a powerful beam of light. And they're going to flavour society, just as salt does, and preserve it. And so he goes on then to talk into what it means to live right. This is where he says you need a new kind of righteousness. Your righteousness has got to be bigger than just keeping the little laws that the Pharisees say you've got to keep. God has a whole picture of how you want to spend your life that just changes your relationship to everybody else. And he says this is what fulfills the law and the prophets. So he talks about life on the outside of your life and talks about six different problems we can get into. And he talks about anger. He talks about lust. He talks about people callously divorcing their wives and, and leaving without any resources whatsoever. He talks about breaking promises. He talks about taking revenge. And he talks about enmity and ending enmity and, and, and living in peace with people. And all of those different six things are ways in which we can really mess up the relationships we have with others. And Jesus says, listen, if you're really going to be part of God's new kingdom, this is the style. These are the pitfalls you've got to adopt, uh, avoid. You've got to get away from these things. Having talked about that, he then talks about, actually, when you pray, go away and pray in secret. And this, again, is part of talking about our relationship with other people, because in his day, some of the Pharisees, who were very proud of their devotion to God, would stand there on the street corner and pray out loud, Oh, God, I want to thank you that you are blessing me in my business. Are you listening back there? And I thank you, too, that I am a good man. Yeah, I keep all the law. Don't, don't you stop smiling. You know, and they would do it on the street corner for everybody to listen. And uh, Jesus says, when you pray, it's between you and your father, you being honest with him. Go away and pray in secret. And so he then says, this is how you should pray. <laughs> and finally, you reach the pinnacle of the mountain, which is the Lord's Prayer. You've probably heard millions of talks on the Lord's Prayer, <laughs> so I'm not going to go into that in any depth. But it seems to me this is the very heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And then he starts coming down the other side. 
He's talked about how we live on the outside with other people, but there's, there's some, th- some things that we would do by ourselves as well. And just as he's spoken about secret prayer before he gave us the Lord's Prayer, now he talks about secret fasting. He says, don't make a big fuss of, oh, you know, I haven't had any breakfast for the last three weeks because I'm so holy. Mm-hmm. I haven't, and tonight I'll probably skip supper as well and read the book of Zephaniah instead. You know, you know, that was the kind of thing that some of the showy uh, individuals were doing in society. And Jesus said, don't do that. When you fast, don't let anybody know what you're doing. Not because it's shameful or secret or whatever, but just because you don't want to call attention to yourself. If you give up things for God, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. Don't even think about it in your head. You know, oh, I'm so whole because I did such and such. Don't do that. Keep it secret. And so then he goes on to talk about the secret bit of your life. The internal bit. And as just as he's talked about on the outside in the first half, then the mirror image is that he now talks about inside the heart. And he talks about six attitudes we're supposed to have. He talks about trusting God. He talks about judging other people. He talks about dealing with anxiety. He talks about who we're allied to and who we're not. He talks about our outlook and he talks about our ambition. And he says all of these things are inside your heart, controlling what comes out of it. So deal with not just the outside of your life and the way you behave towards other people, deal with what's going on in there. And he says, once again, this is where the law and the prophets are all summed up. This is the law and the prophets, he says. And that just leaves the the other other mirror image bits. He talked about living right in chapter 5. Now in chapter 7, he talks about choosing right. He talks about the fact there are lots of teachers around that might sway you and lead you off in different directions. And they're all just trying to mislead you. They're false prophets. Be careful that you tell the difference between false prophets and those who are really speaking the word of God. And uh, this is where, of course, we reach the bit of the, the end of the sermon that we actually read, where he starts talking about the building. Started with the Beatitudes, ends with the building. You're building your life in one way or another. You can either build it securely on the rock on the basis of hearing what Jesus says and doing it. Or you can build it on the sand, which means you hear it still, but you don't pay any attention to it. And so what he's doing, it seems to me, in the Sermon on the Mount, is presenting a picture, a manifesto, for what the kingdom is going to be all about and how it's going to affect us as individuals personally. We have to look at the way we behave towards one another because it's a massive part of our discipleship. But we can't just be Christians on the outside. Inside, our heart has to be dealt with as well. I don't know if you've heard about it, but t- Tim Keller died last week, which makes me feel very scared because he was two months older than I am. But anyhow, that's another issue. We are born the same year. Tim Keller is a guy in America who uh, was a very, very bright young man. He did very, very well at university, but he knew that God had called him to preach. And so he went off to... A town in Pennsylvania, which was a blue-collar town, where you couldn't preach fancy intellectual sermons because nobody would understand them. And so despite the fact he had an excellent brain, and he kept on feeding this excellent brain by reading all kinds of stuff, current affairs, philosophy, the lot, nonetheless he was breaking down the word of God and making it simple right through his career until 1989, when God said to him, go and start a church in New York City. And most of his people, when most of the people he spoke to about it said, that is absolutely impossible. New York, that is sin city. You know, that's a place where nobody's interested in God these days. The only churches that are concerns are the big society churches. And uh, nobody's going to listen. 
Lots of young people, uh, lots of universities, lots of ambition to make money, but no interest in the gospel. And he went to 1989 and started Church of the Redeemer in Manhattan. And uh, I got to go there just one Sunday. We were in, in America for a conference, and I decided to go to, to listen to Tim Kimmer on a Sunday morning. The problem was that although he'd started with just 50 people in 1989, by the time I got there a few years ago, the church had already grown to three different campuses. And because everyone wanted to hear Tim Keller, they wouldn't tell you which campus he was preaching on on Sunday morning. And we guessed wrong. We guessed wrong. Anthony and I ended up listening to his assistant pastor, who was actually pretty good, a guy called Abraham, and it was a very good sermon. But it was amazing that lots of people that you, of the type that you would have seen on the streets of New York, the ambitious, thrusting, upwardly mobile young people, they were there, and they were taking notes, you know, and they were taking it very seriously indeed. And just and through the years from 1989, God has blessed Tim Keller's ministry in New York so massively that now I think he's on uh, five different congregations and 13 other churches have been planted in the suburbs, which are not churches, but he's, he's kept a good, uh, careful eye on them and helped them grow and develop using the principles that he developed. But simply that he was somebody whom people knew they could trust right the way through. Okay, he was very bright, kept on getting in, uh, invited to interesting places around the world to speak. Um, there's a great uh, video on YouTube of him speaking the, the, the Google campus which is full of the sort of people you would think would never listen to the Christian gospel. And he gives the most incredibly compelling case for the Christian faith you can imagine. And he's, he, he's died just last week, leaving behind an incredible record. His obituary was in all of the big American papers across the nation. Most of the broadcasting channels featured a little documentary about his life and life left behind, simply because he was somebody who didn't want anything for himself. He didn't think, right, I've got my college degree. I'm going to go in there and plant a mega church. He just went where God sent him. He drew no attention to himself. He made sure he was right on the outside in terms of the relationships he had with people. And uh, he was encouraging in other people through building his church. And made sure he was right on the inside as well. Humble, devoted to God, merciless with himself in terms of rooting out everything that was selfish and wrong and self-centered and simply devoting himself to the gospel. As a result, he said, you know, just, just a couple of months ago before he died, he said, uh, I find that as my, my health declines, because he suffered from pancreatic cancer, he knew the end was coming. He said, I find as my health declines, I'm interested in just two things. The first is walking in closer communion with God, and the second is fighting sin in myself. And I thought reading that, well, why bother? You know, if you know you're going to be dead in five minutes, you know, you're going to see Jesus anyway. So why bother growing closer to him right now? And why bother dealing with sin in yourself? Because, you know, you've reached the end of the trail. There's not much sin you can do anymore. <laughs> so, but he kept on going right to the end, just trying to get himself right and get closer to, 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 to Jesus as a result. And that's the way, I think, that God wants us to live in his kingdom. So he had to sum up the Sermon on the Mount. Three things it says are these. First, you've got to have a healthy life both inside and outside. Your Christianity must not be on the surface. It must run right through you. And at the heart of it must be a relationship with, with God through prayer. The summit of the sermon is the Lord's Prayer. And the way you deal with your Heavenly Father when it's just you and him and nobody else listening, that is the real test of the value and the quality of your Christian life. 
And the third thing simply is that the secret of success is where Jesus ends his sermon, choosing to do what Jesus says, standing on the rock, not building on the sand, and that's what will talk you through life triumphantly. You'll be blessed, Jesus starts off by talking about. And when you do that, Jesus says, you'll be part of a kingdom that's never been, the like of which has never been seen ever in our, in our world, which will never be replaced again. That's the importance, it seems to me, of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's just pray together for a second, shall we? So, Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to do a quick tour just around the outside of something massive. And I pray that uh, you'll help some of us to go home and just read through the whole thing, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, because there is so much there that every time we read it, hits our life in various points and makes us think, I need to do better here. Help again the honesty with you and the realism and the commitment to make some kind of sense in our own lives of what Jesus was talking about here. We don't want to be the people down at the foot of the hill who don't get what it's all about yet, and they're falling at a distance. We want to be right there on the heartbeat of Jesus, fulfilling his vision, being blessed, being the kind of people that you can work with and make something great out of, so that what comes out of our life by the end of it will be far bigger and more important and more satisfying and more glorifying to you than we can possibly dare to hope in advance. We ask it for your namesake. Amen.